Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. Hi, Patricia. Good evening, Bernice. Good evening. Well, everyone, Patricia will monitor the chat room and summarize your comments. Well, a special welcome to the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show will focus on Malagasy roots, and my guests tonight are Dr. Wendy Wilson-Fall and Teresa Vega. Dr. Wendy Wilson-Fall is Associate Professor and Program Chair of the Africana Studies Program at Lafayette College. She received her Ph.D. from Howard University's African Studies Center with a concentration in social anthropology. Her research engages questions of sociocultural change and ethnic identity. She has published numerous journal articles and book chapters on these themes, including work from her field research in West Africa, as well as her work in the U.S. on African-American family narratives. She published her book, which was released in 2005, Memories of Madagascar and the Black Atlantic. Wendy is a descendant of Malagasy immigrants that arrived in Maryland in mid-1800s. Teresa Vega's background in cultural anthropology helped her to research her ancestral roots. She began blogging to document the genealogy research she had been doing over the past several years. She is a proud member of both the New Jersey and New York chapters of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society and the Facebook group African-American Genealogy and Slave Ancestry Research. Since 
2014, Teresa is the co-administrator of the FTDNA Malagasy Roots Project with C.C. Moore and a descendant of Malagasy enslaved people going back to the late 1600s and early 1700s from New York and Virginia. And I just want to give a shout-out to Cece Moore. Cece, we're all thinking of you, and get well soon. So let me give a warm welcome to Professor Wendy Wilson-Fall and Teresa Vega to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. So glad to have both of you on the line. So we're going to start with Professor Fall. So when did you, or at least when did you actually begin this research and what motivated you to examine the history of Madagascar and the slave trade? Well, thanks so much for having me. First of all, I want to tell you how thrilled I am to be here and to share this experience with Teresa, who I know has a lot of really very fascinating things to talk about is that uh, we share interests that we have in common. I worked on this research for many years, I would say two decades, actually. Um, but it developed into a much more serious um, endeavor, I would say around 2001, when um, we organized a workshop at the Library of Congress with um, a person from Madagascar who was then a, a fellow of the Library of Congress whose name is Emmanuel Tehendrazanarivelo. So um, that was really the start of a much more serious research project that took me to the archives and to many secondary sources and also to Madagascar. What motivated me was actually a family story about uh, my mother's, um, I guess it would be her third great-great-grandfather, who we called Mr. Muhammad. So um, this was a family story, and I thought we were the only family who had such a story, so it wasn't something, you know, that we discussed outside of the family. We just talked about it in those days. Um, to the children, it just seemed like, wow, we're weird. We have somebody called Mr. Muhammad, <laughs> you know. And uh, it was a story that all of the children in my family learned very seriously. And we knew that we had relatives in Frederick, Maryland. But um, it wasn't until um, I had been living in West Africa, um, and I came back to the state. My aunt Sheila Thomas, who's Sheila Gregory Thomas, who has also done a lot of research, had been looking through the archives and uh, trying to learn more about Muhammad, who, who we knew as Jeremiah Muhammad, his wife and his children. And we went to a family reunion in Frederick, Maryland. So when I went to this family reunion that... Um, I was really struck by uh, the things that I had studied in anthropology and the things I'd been trying to practice in West Africa, and I kind of tried to apply that to looking at my own family. 
And I realized that there were a lot of stories there that I hadn't taken seriously enough. So that one of my big concerns and messages is really for African-Americans to try to record their family stories, even if the story seems crazy. Just record it and worry about how crazy it is later because these things are being lost to us. So I listened to the family story, and then I went back several times to talk to my cousin, who was also named Jeremiah Muhammad. And um, I have quite a few families, members still in Frederick, Maryland, who still have the name Muhammad. And Sheila and I found, uh, my aunt Sheila and I found about five households in the 1850 census who were all Muhammad, and it's built in a a particular way with T at the end, and we could see all these different Muhammad households um, there in Frederick. So um, eventually we found someone arriving on the ship Joanna in 1822 uh, by the name of um, Muhammad, and we believe his name was Poe Muhammad. Poe is a kind of a salutary, like Mr., in um, Indonesia, so we're not 100% sure that this is the person, but I can also say we have not, you don't no other Mohammeds show up until the 1870s, so we think that this might be our person. But at any rate, um, I went to go visit my cousin who lived in northern Baltimore and his family, and uh, eventually he started telling me things that he really hadn't shared with a lot of people for a long time because they seemed so outlandish. And eventually he told me about 20 different words that he said he thought uh, were from Madagascar. He talked about uh, ships, uh, boats a lot, sailboats. He talked about how people cooked in the sand. He talked about how people were buried. And I was just amazed. How could somebody remember this over these generations. And he talked about how he was a little boy and he would listen to his grandfather talk, grandfather John Muhammad. So then I went over to the embassy of Madagascar um, where I was very fortunate to meet someone named Susan Sangalara who's no longer with us. She's passed away. But she was the cultural attache at the time. And it was Susan who was able to tell me that she recognized all but one of the words as coming from Northwest Madagascar. And I was really just, it just blew my mind. Um, the first phrase that my cousin remembered was Nyangoronyolo, um, which means crybaby. <laughs> and I guess that some of those phrases stuck in the family, right? Because maybe people called him a crybaby when he was misbehaving. So he remembered that phrase. So that's how I first got interested. I have to um, really say my parents were um, interested, and my Aunt Sheila uh, Gregory Thomas did a lot of the initial uh, research on our family. After that, I I really uh, took it very, very seriously, Um, and I began to visit the Embassy of Madagascar more often. I have to say they've always been very gracious. And I started working with a, a group of families in Virginia, uh, the Clark family, and um, in meeting the family of John Clark, I came around. I came upon a whole network of families 
um, around um, uh, outside of Richmond who were related to um, someone that they called Lucy Ann Rondriana Clark, who was their uh, maternal great-great-grandmother who came in the 1830s. And she married John Clark, who they say came on a ship, and who was also free. Well, this really blew my mind because I thought, what do you mean free? How did all these people get here? But I have to say before that, I neglected to say something. I gave a talk um, with my aunt in Washington, D.C. while I was still in college. And during this talk, nine people showed up to the talk and said, we are also people who have ancestors from Madagascar. And this was very thrilling to me because all my life I only knew of one other family who said they had an ancestor from Madagascar. It felt very lonely, and it felt like it was something that you couldn't talk about too much because nobody would believe you. So um, that's, that is what has motivated me, is this idea that these people came here And people laughed at their stories. People didn't believe them, even during slavery, after slavery, as more and more pressure came upon Africans and African-Americans from different places, African-American Creoles and the Malagasy people to just sort of, you know, shut up and be black and and, and don't bug us, you know. It it crushed a lot of cultural expression in the black community. And so I really feel a responsibility to um, to tell these stories. And I began interviewing other African Americans. Uh, when I started well, Wendy, interviewing, before we, yeah. Wendy, before yes. we go into your your methodology, just to help people understand exactly where is Madagascar. Okay. Well, Madagascar is something like the fourth or fifth largest island in the world it is off of the east coast of africa its eastern shore faces the indian ocean and its western shore faces the mozambique channel so on the other side of that mozambique channel is the country of mozambique which is in southeast africa and Mozambique, along with the, all the all, all along the east coast of uh, Africa, is uh, the home of many different Swahili kingdoms and states. So uh, Madagascar is between that and the Western Indian Ocean. It was a very important um, stopover during the era of sailing navigation. So um, mm-hmm. when people were going to the or trying to get to India from Europe or the United States, they very often would stop in uh, northwestern Madagascar and also Zanzibar. Uh, Then in the 17th century, sorry, the very early 18th century, you have some French missionaries who moved to the eastern coast of Madagascar. Um, And many of them were uh, situated close to what is now called Tamatav, if you look at... uh, at the ma- the map of Madagascar. Mhm. So and then what time period? Mhm. What time period did the the slave trade take place from Madagascar to North America? Right. Well, that started in the 17th century. Mhm. So, uh, 
I wanted to say that Madagascar, even though everybody speaks the same language, is really made up of several different ethnic groups um, that are located, or at least originate in particular geographic regions of Madagascar. So slavery was practiced in different parts of Madagascar by different people. And Mm -hmm. the first slaves who came to um, North America seem to have come as a result of the Dutch slave trade and also um, the French slave trade. And so many of them were in Canada. And as um, as Teresa will be able to talk about in great detail, um, uh, what is today New York State and New Jersey, which, of course, were founded by the Dutch West Indies Company. So the Dutch were the first big slave traders. And after the Dutch came the English and the French. So people were shipped out of Madagascar, initially from northeast Madagascar, an island called St. Mary's Island, and along that um, eastern coast. At the same time, during the 1600s, many Malagasy people were shipped out as slaves to Cape Town, South Africa, because Cape Town was being built up at that time, and of course that was also under the Dutch. And at the same time, many people from Madagascar were shipped as slaves to Indonesia, where there were pepper plantations. Interesting. Yeah. So So they didn't just come to here. They were shipped to many different places. To many different places. So tell us about your, your research methodology and what did you find? Okay, so um, the main thing about my research uh, methodology, which made it uh, a kind of a new approach, is that instead of taking the the problem, which was in this case knowing about black people of Malagasy origin in the United States and going straight to the archives, I went to the people and listened to the stories that people told me about their families, their surnames. I created a website. I had the workshop at the Library of Congress, and my desire was to, and my objective was to collect as many stories as possible, not to worry about whether I thought they sounded silly or impossible, but just to try to create a website where we could post those stories. People could go look at them and... um, we could all together look at this problem. From there, I went to secondary sources, in particular a couple of articles in the William and Mary Journal, um, work by Pierre Larson, who is a very well-known scholar on Madagascar, who's at Johns Hopkins University, Ned Alpers, who's at UCLA, um, and uh, Alan... uh, at um, Framingham University, all these scholars in of Indian Ocean studies were important in helping me find the books that I wanted to use. So after that, I went to um, Williamsburg. I was fortunate uh, to get a grant from the Rockefeller Library of Colonial Williamsburg, and I went down there and started 
of going through the original manuscripts at the University of Virginia and going through a lot of microfilm, a lot of microfilm. And what I realized I had to do was to look at the correspondence of the slave owners. So many of your audience might be interested in this article by Virginia Beaver Platt, which was in um, the William and Mary Quarterly in 1969 that talked about the ships that brought in the people from Madagascar. So between 1719 and 1721, about 1,400 Malagasy slaves were brought into Virginia. And this was really unusual because it meant that people who came from the same geographic area, who spoke the same language, were clustered into a relatively small area in Tidewater, Virginia, and Tidewater, Maryland. Um, and luckily, there was another historian, um, Lorena Walsh, who's also in Colonial Williamsburg, who was working on this whole problem of um, clustering of different African language groups in Virginia. So as it turns out, um, I realized that uh, Robert King Carter, who I'm sure you're going to hear more about him later, was one of the major investors along with John Randolph, Sir John Randolph, as he's remembered, and they are very closely tied to the Fitzhugh the Brown, the Harrison, um, and the Lee families in Virginia, all of these people married each other. And that had very important um, ramifications for the experience of the slaves because it meant that those slaves were pretty much circulated around a limited population, most of them. Uh, Some of the slaves did, about 35% did go to individual owners, but a great number of the slaves ended up being uh, circulated among the descendants of these people who I've just named so that they, you, we can imagine that perhaps uh, they overlapped. You know, people ended up with their third cousins or second cousins on any given uh, plantation in the Tidewater. So uh, that was the, my major uh, research at the time. There's also the Ragland family from Petersburg. Uh, That's a very interesting story. And then from there, I also learned about people of Malagasy uh, descent who were enslaved and ended up in the Deep South from Texas, Georgia. Um, It appears that either they were shipped out of Virginia to places further south, or some of them may have been smuggled into the Deep South uh, illegally after illegal slavery ended around 1819. Okay, and so I want you just to go back for one second and tell us how many people uh, were actually shipped between 1719 and 1721. You gave us a number. Right. Well, what we can say is how many people arrived. It's such a sad story. Uh, 1,400 arrived. Okay, 1,400. But many died Mm -hmm. on the way. And if you look through Carter's correspondence, you see references to the fact that many, I mean, I was horrified once when I was reading, and they said I think something like 400 Malagasy slaves 
arrived almost dead with some kind of um, disease of the eyes. So, and you know, were they men, women, and children, or just men? What was the sex good breakdown question. and age breakdown? Um, I don't think we have the age breakdown for that. We do know that some children did come because Robert Carter was complaining about it. And he also complained about the fact that there were too many women in the shipment. So Mm -hmm. it appears that the majority of the people who came between 1719 and 1721, which is the period that I focus on, were women. There were, of course, some men, and you can find evidence of these men in runaway ads from Virginia from that period. Now, there were a few people who were also brought in uh, between 1712 and 1719, but you didn't have that large shipment. So in that short period, 1,400 Malagasy slaves were brought to the Tidewater. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier that you went to the people and had yes. the people provide you with oral history. That's how did right. you identify How did you identify the people, and what kind of stories did they share with you? Well, you know, the thing is that's so fa- exciting about this, it's just like taking the top off of something. Once you start, even when I put my website up, which is a long time ago, I don't know when it was, 1999 maybe, probably 1999, people started coming to me because they were like me. Nobody ever talked about it. Mm -hmm. So once I put up that website and I started um, looking for people via um, Ancestry.com, I would start searching for people who had used Madagascar as a search term. And then I would try to write to them directly to ask them about their stories. And I have to say everybody was happy to be able to share their stories and to try to learn more. Um, and as it turned out, the fir- as I went further and further along, I realized that many of these people might have been related. So I ended up with a lot of people who claimed descendants from the raglands or ragland plantations, people who were associated with Carter's plantations, um, the Harrisons, the Fitzhughes. Uh, it was really remarkable to see how these stories started networking. Yes. Uh, yeah, but it was mainly through, I was out of the country part of this time, uh, living in Senegal, so I was doing a lot of this work um, by email, and then when I would get back, that's how I that's how I first met Lisa Lee, for example, during this period. And then when I would get back, Lisa Lee being a famous, uh, you know, black genealogist, then when I would come back, I would try to phone everybody and talk to them over the phone. So um, I started getting stories about how people arrived, um how people lived in Virginia and um, didn't know. One of the most outstanding parts of this, what people said was really their sadness and their frustration that they didn't know more about their ancestors. For a lot of people, the biggest thing that they knew is that somebody down the line had insisted, don't forget 
you have some ancestors from Madagascar. But they didn't remember a lot more because of the conditions under which they lived. And I think particularly the probably a lot of these stories had more detail right up to the 19th century. But it was mm-hmm. during the 19th century that African Americans were really, especially after uh, the Civil War, African Americans were really under a lot of pressure to come together and support each other, to try to forget the past, to become more religious, join the church, so forth and so on. So I think people were under pressure even if they did have these stories, to suppress them. So I believe Mm -hmm. there are probably other stories of other origins that people had that were suppressed within the family because the people who of African descent were trying to uh, come together and create a community and defend themselves, really. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, why don't you tell us, because I know you work with the uh, Digital Humanities Project, uh, that map the geographic locations of the family narratives yes. and the plantations. Tell us about this uh, this resource. Well, this was this has been a really um, exciting experience uh, at Lafayette College. I was able to get um, two grants, two Mellon grants, to work with our GIS visualization librarian. That's somebody who has been trained in mapping, and his name is John Clark. Uh, Fortunately for me, he's also very interested in ships and uh, 19th century trade. So um, I also worked with uh, students. I was lucky to work with a young lady from Madagascar named Clara, and um, I worked with a Jamaican student. And what we did is to follow the stories of, we did two things. We did the mapping with John Clark, which basically is all the information that's in my book um, that came out in 2015. We applied geographic data to find out exactly where those places were because we began to see that there seemed to be clusters of stories. So there was a geographic characteristic to these oral histories. Some of them were around Petersburg, Virginia, which is where the Raglands were. A lot of them were around eastern Virginia, uh, not that far from um, Williamsburg. And then some of them were a little bit further west. And so it's it's this way that we were able to... identify plantations. We did research to find the plantations of Robert Carter and his, uh, his which in anthropology we call them affines, you know, the, the families that he married or his daughters married into. We tried to mm-hmm. identify all of those sites on the map. So that's, And so that map that, is available. People can see yes, that. Yes. It's available if you go to um, to the website for Lafayette College, which is simply www.lafayette.edu. 
and you look up uh, the digital collections, and under digital collections, you look up Madagascar. And I would urge and, and people, when we do that, what will we see? Exactly what will we see? Well, you'll see several things. There are two maps that are available. Uh, there are some photographs. There are some excerpts from uh, my book. And there's some discussions about how we went about doing that work. Okay. Now, we have a question, and it's really not a question, but tell everybody about your book. Okay. Uh, the book is called Memories of Madagascar and Slavery in the Black Atlantic. It was published by Ohio University Press in 2015. It's available in paperback. You can get it by going to the Ohio University Press website, uh, and you can buy it online there. I understand you can also get it through Amazon. Okay. Okay, so Wendy, do you have any information, any additional information to share with us before we take a quick break and bring Teresa on? Yes, I would like to um, urge people to also look, consider many different possibilities because some different stories may teach us new things. In my own case, I found those three categories of people. People, the majority who came in as slaves uh, to the East Coast, uh, people who seemed to be displaced from the East Coast or who were smuggled in in the Deep South because some people got landed in Louisiana, for sure, for example. And then other people who came in as sailors, which is what I'm working on now. So there are other Malagasy people who came in working on ships that were part of the New England trade to the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. And that's also a possibility that some people came in in the 1830s um, as uh, maritime labor or even with the help of missionaries. So there are really three possibilities that we know about so far, and we may learn about some other new ones. Okay. Well, we actually have a question coming in, and so I'm going to put the caller on the line. Caller 504, you have a question or a comment? Yes, I have a comment and a question. This is a very, very interesting show. And uh, in uh, I live in New Orleans, and about 65 miles west of New Orleans, going towards Baton Rouge, there's a little city called Donaldsonville. And it was a very well-known black doctor. His name was Dr. Lorry, John Lorry. He born 1860. He died in 1940. So I was reading an article about him just the other day from a blog, and Bernice knows the person who put the blog together, and he said that his mother, who was from Tennessee, was of Madagascar roots. Yeah, in, yeah. In, in, this, in this article... And uh, my question uh, to to the the guest is, uh, the mixture in Madagascar of the people who came from Indonesia and the uh, those, could you talk about whether those Malagasy people came with that mixture that you have today in Madagascar? And could you mention about Andy Razoff? I'll hang up Andy Razoff, the uh, Tin Pan Alley composer, who was sure. a Madagascar? Um, now hang up. Thank you. I mean, I listen. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for your question. For the first okay. part of your question, in my book, 
I talk about narratives that I collected from Tennessee and from Kentucky. In both cases, there were Malagasy people, not a whole boatload of people, but like a couple in one case, one woman in another case, who were brought as a separate property, if you will, by the ship owners. So there were people who were brought in in very small groups, one, two, three people who were brought in uh, late in the 1830s, uh, especially by people working on ships. And there are African Americans who have written autobiographies and talked about that. You can find that information in the bibliography of my, my book. In terms of ethnicity in Madagascar, Madagascar was settled like 1,500 years ago. It's at that time that the Malagasy people uh, came into being through a mixture of people mostly from uh, Java in Indonesia and from the east coast of Africa. So all of the people in Malagasy, in Madagascar, mostly are mixed, unless they were brought in as slaves from Mozambique, Recently, and by recently, I mean like in the 19th century or the early, yeah, in the 19th century. So um, some may look a little bit different than others, but all of, from the genetic work that they have done, all of the people in Madagascar who are Malagasy can trace back uh, to the same uh, genetic roots. Um, So I hope that does answer your question uh, to some extent. Uh, in terms okay. of Andy Rotsoff, I'll just very quickly. In terms of Andy Rotsoff, Andy Rotsoff actually married my cousin, who used to be the director of the Schomburg Library. He was a jazz musician, and his mother married a prince in the Malagasy court. But unfortunately, her husband was assassinated. Her father, uh, uh, Ambassador Waller was one of the first African-American ambassadors, and he was the ambassador to Madagascar. Um, We can talk later, if you like, and I can give you more information on that. Okay. Well, Wendy, thank you so very much. We're going to take a quick break and then continue this discussion about the mixture and DNA with Teresa. So quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, 
stories and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, we have just finished listening to Professor Wendy Wilson fall, and she provided us with an overview of Madagascar and the slave trade. So now we're going to then go into a discussion on DNA. And I'm happy to welcome Teresa Vega for this discussion. She is the co-administrator of the FTDNA Madagascar Project with C.C. Moore. Welcome, Teresa. Good evening, everybody. I, I have to say I'm happy to be here and happy to be on the podcast with uh, Wendy Wilson Fall. It's been a long time coming. Um, I'd like to start off talking about my involvement with FTDNA's Malagasy Roots Project with C.C. Uh, more about, it's been like almost three and a half years that uh, we first met. She was speaking at a genealogy conference here in Manhattan, and she was speaking about the scenes that cut get cut from PBS Finding Your Roots show. And one of the scenes she was talking about, if you remember the episode with Benjamin Jealous, uh, she, was, she spoke about how she found out his mtDNA was one of the uh, B4A1A1B haplogroups from Madagascar, and she started talking about how she just found out about the um, Virginia Malagasy who came over. And I remember raising my hand and I said, but we were also here in New York. And that's how we actually uh, met. I had already tested a lot of um, my cousins as well as my immediate family. We found out we had the M23 haplogroup, which is the only haplogroup found in Madagascar. All your other haplogroups are found in Madagascar, either in as well as in Africa or, or Asia. But M23 um, provided, for me anyways, a control group. So when I when I wrote um, part one of the DNA trail from Madagascar to Manhattan, it was basically because in doing the research on D, the DNA haplogroups found in Madagascar, I realized that. Um, you had a lot more. If you look at the newly published uh, haplogroups and Y-DNA groups, you'll find that for mtDNA especially, a majority of the haplogroups are L-haplogroups that are also found in Africa. So for me, one of the things that I'm always confronted with was how do I go about um, trying to find out if someone has Malagasy roots? Um, Based on my family's DNA test, and this is why we have the FTDNA Malagasy Roots Project, is because it's based on fact, DNA. My family, because it's only found there, we are lucky enough to have two different lines of Malagasy descent in two of the main places where that received a majority of the Malagasy slaves. Uh, so we have... The DNA, we have the admixture, which I'll go into, and we have the local history, family history. So when I wrote part one, and I can't believe it's been two and a half years, um, 
I included a lot of references of, of studies done on Madagascar that, that are related to DNA. Um, as Wendy said when she spoke, you know, you had uh, Malagasy captives coming as early as the first Dutch ship was 1664. And then for New York, you're talking 1678 to 1698. And again, Virginia, mostly 1719 to 1721. Uh, so once I looked at all of the people tested in my family, I was able to especially in part one, look at the uh, admixture breakdown for 23andMe results. And then I went and people know that I compared several of my, my relatives. Um, at the time, I also looked at uh, DNA Tribe's SNP analysis. That has changed from two and a half years ago. But I picked the GEDmatch calculators with the understanding that let me use these calculators that can isolate um, some of the Malagasy admixture we're finding. And for the record, um, Wendy also mentioned this, a 100% Malagasy genome is basically half African. And when I say African, I'm not talking West African. I'm talking East Coast of Africa. So it can be East, South Central, South Africa, and the other 50% has a Southeast Asian component or a South Asian component, but you need both. You can't have one without the other, which requires, uh, you know, a DNA test to, to take. And also, these calculators uh, can pick up on some of uh, the admixture uh, indicators. So when you look at the GEDmat, when you look at 23andMe, for instance, um, you're always going to see if someone has Malagasy roots, that they have either a Central and South African and or East African component, or they have a Southeast Asian or an Oceanian or a South Asian component, you're going to see both on their admixture charts. Uh, the same thing when you, uh, uh, in part three, which is the DNA trail from Madagascar to Virginia, I actually spend more time talking about the admixture results from Ancestry. But on the GEDmatch calculators, you're going to be seeing, I, I recommend, for example, uh, the Docade Africa 9. That's going to tell you if you have East or South Africa. And some of the other calculators have uh, Southeast Asian um, uh, uh, admixture, which could be Melanesia, Polynesia, Papuan, um, South Asia, etc. I, I go into a detailed analysis of that, and I also updated that blog post to reflect the current um, haplogroups and Y-DNA groups. Now, when I did part two, that was to tell my family's history. I'm the descendant of Atlantic Creoles, some of the first families from Angola, to come over, as well as one family was uh, Emmanuel D'Angola. Second family was the mulatto descendant of a Dutch captain and his Brazilian wife. And they arrived in the 1620s, 1640s. In 1687, my two Afro-Dutch family members got together with 14 Dutch families. Out of the 14, nine were Blauvelt, Schmidt, and Herring in-laws. Those were the slave owners of my Malagasy ancestors. My folks went over to Bergen County, 
They lived in the Tappan Patent as the Black Laws came in. Some of them merged with the uh, Ramapo Lenape. Um, in this blog post, I detailed the whole New York to Madagascar slave trade. I'm not going to go into that. People can read about it. Um, when it comes to DNA, uh, we did do the full sequence. I had uh, my third cousin, Andrea, who is a matrilineal descendant of our shared second great-grandmother tested. My 101, God bless her, year-old cousin, Helen Hamilton, her grandmother was my second great-grandmother's sister. She was tested. Um, out of our M23 cohort, uh, uh, most, after a couple of years, have some sort of tie to the New York, New Jersey area if we go back hundreds of years. We have one person who I'm always so happy to brag about, our cousin Alan, who has roots in South, uh, I want to say St. Helena Island in the southern Pacific. St. Helena was actually the first stop when slave ships left Madagascar. They had to stop in St. Helena. Um, what I've been trying to do recently is to to share what I found out about studying my family and applying it to other people. So in this part three uh, DNA trail from Madagascar to Virginia, Wendy's book is a gold mine for me because I am the a descendant of Robert King Carter. My Robert King Carter is my eighth slave owner, great grandfather. Uh, she mentioned John Randolph. He happens to be my ninth slave owner, great uncle. And I'm a related, my third great-grandmother, Pretty Anna Lee, of Malagasy descent, was born on Shirley Plantation. Her father was the older brother of General Robert E. Lee, and that's Charles Carter Lee. And that, of course, was a Carter Plantation. So in my new blog post, I'm again, one of my, I always start a blog post with a question. I have five colonial roots on my maternal side. Two are from are the Carter Lee line from my maternal grandmother, and two are the Thomas Jackson line from my maternal grandfather. And then I have a fifth one from also my paternal grandfather's side, where my third great grandmother from who arrived from Virginia uh, in 1820-something to Greenwich, Connecticut. So in having five colonial lines to Virginia, the question comes up is, we have no known ancestry that we know of, written, documented oral history of any relatives, any ancestors south of Virginia. So here I take the test, and through the Malagasy Roots Project, um, one of the things I want to get back to Wendy's book, she talks about the oral history that's passed down. And we always hear um, how Malagasy folks were phenotypically different. They look different. So Pretty's, um, her son, my second great-grandfather, James Mitchell, who left Petersburg, Virginia, ended up in Boston, he was always said to be, and she was always said to be, you know, mulatto, half-white, and then black and Native American. And through the uh, Malagasy Roots Project, we happened to match other known uh, Malagasy descended African Americans. Uh, Jill Raglan is, is one of them. 
Um, and we know the rag, white raglans interacted and intermarried with all these first families of Virginia, of which my Carters and Lees are part of it. So the question I have is how do I, I can analyze admixture on Ancestry, and, and I'll be writing about this explicitly, but if you have Malagasy roots, they're going to show up in your trace regions if you tested at Ancestry. So what we consistently find in testing um, our DNA cousins is the fact that they're, again, showing this South, Southeast Asian and an East African or, or, or um, an East African uh, admixture. So for Ancestry, you're going to see Africa, Southeast Bantu. I think it's South Central Hunters and Gatherers, and this could be and or. Or you're going to see Melanesia along with that, Polynesia. It could be South Asia. It's, you see these consistently. And when I go back and look at all of our DNA cousins, um, all of my cousins who have been tested and then their DNA cousins, that's when you see we have Malagasy roots that extend to the deep south. So the research question I had, and I always have to ask myself, what is the story there? How, did, how do I ha have no known ties, but yet all these cousins come out with Malagasy roots? And in researching that, you have to understand Richmond was an epicenter in the domestic slave trade. So you're talking something like 350,000 enslaved people of Malagasy descent, and of course, at this time, we're, we're African-American now, so it's Malagasy originally mixed with West African, European, Native American. These people are being sold south, and they're being walked in coffles, shipped on ships, and put on railroads point south. And you have to look at um, the dispersion of Malagasy folks hand-in-hand um, hand with the expansion of this country. So what you have that's happening, and you always, I always press on people the need to study local history because it's very informative. So what you have is as the tobacco industry declines, there's an excess of, of enslaved people. So what do they do? They start shipping them out to New Orleans for the sugar plantations, other points south to work the cotton industry. So when I look at the Malagasy Roots Project, um, one of the things we see is that you can have, let's say, well, one of the interesting things to me, and, and again, we need more people to take an mtDNA test so that we can see if this holds true across the board. With my cohort... Well, wait a minute. It's not just the mtDNA, though. Uh, you're talking about the full sequence. I'm talking about, okay, when I say MT, I'm talking about the full sequence MT. And yes. this is the difference. You want to take a full sequence, thank you, Bernice, MT DNA test, because once you test, do a full sequence test, you're going to be put in touch with your cousins on that particular matrilineal line. Some of the other Okay, we have a question here and I and I want to just stop you for a minute because I don't want to assume that everyone understands exactly what you're talking about. So tell the group what mtDNA, what is the mtDNA test? It's a mitochondrial DNA that tests your mother's 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 line, so your original matrilineal line. For instance, 
we tested, Andrea, that came back M23. That proved our original, the original matrilineal line of our shared second great-grandmother was found in Madagascar. Now, if you're a male, you want to take a Y DNA test. That test is going to trace your original paternal line, your father's 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 line. So in my blog post, you will see a list of the updated, based on the latest research coming out on uh, uh, DNA studies in Madagascar, you're going to see the updated list of all the mitochondrial DNA haplogroups and all of the Y DNA. Now, what's important to remember is with admixture, even though I look at admixture tests, and, and for the record, if you do a DNA Tribes updated SNP analysis, they're the only admixture tests that test for Madagascar. Uh, we need to have the DNA part of it because admixture alone is not enough. Um, and I know some people, you know, th those tests are expensive, so I tell people to pull their money, and if you test one person on that line, that's good. It, you know, it'll be the same for everybody that's on that line. But what we're trying to do is, through the project, is connect not only with our Malagasy descendant cousins here in the States, but with other Malagasy folks worldwide. Some of us through And I have a uh, question. Project, I have a question yep. for you, Teresa. I have a question for you. Have African Americans of Malagasy descent connected by way of DNA with relatives recently from or in Madagascar? I was getting to that. Some some of us, and I'm thinking um, my friend Melvin Collier, he wrote a, a, a blog post, I believe, a year ago, where some of us have connected to living Malagasy folks today. Some of us are connected with, for instance, my cousin Helen has a match who lives in France from Mauritius. Her folks have Malagasy roots. So, so, and this is why it's important that you test so that it's definitive. You can, you can look at admixture in it of itself. It will give you clues, but it's not definitive proof enough. We need to start looking at not only admixture, but have the DNA test and then look at your local history. So one of the things I recommend people doing is look at that list of, of haplogroups, go to your GEDmatch one-to-many list, see if you have any DNA cousins who, who have those haplogroups, contact them, find out if they have any oral history. If they, in fact, you know, you know where did they get their haplogroup? You might, not, you might be like me, a Malagasy descendant, but you don't have a Malagasy haplogroup. So I always mm -hmm. recommend testing of relatives. Seek out those people on your one-to-many list. If you are showing Malagasy ethnic admixture indicators, seek out those people and, and learn more. Um, if you have ancestors that are tying back to New York and to Virginia, that's a clue. If you have, I, I was going to say, um, with the Malagasy Roots Project, with, with one of the B4, uh, well, the B4-1A group, um, we have folks who, who, because you have to put your, 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 your oldest ancestor, right? So they're showing their ancestor in New Orleans. But a lot of their folks that, who are in that cohort are showing Virginia roots. 
or this mm-hmm. show in Tennessee, or this show in Kentucky. So when you see something like that, you have to question, was my ancestor originally in Virginia and sold south? We can't underestimate the the impact. The, the African slave trade ended in 1808. The domestic slave trade picked up and went to 1860. Okay. Another thing that Wendy brought up in her book was this illegal slave trade. And and one of the things that, that I've seen across the board, and i got to give a shout-out to my Boricua branches, my Puerto Rican side, is I routinely see some of my Puerto Rican cousins on one to many lists of known African-American Malagasy descendants. And the reason why is we, we have to look at how pervasive the the Malagasy slave trade was. It was throughout the Caribbean. It was throughout Brazil. You're talking in the 16 and 1700s alone, 1700, half the slaves in Barbados were Malagasy descent. Um, So when you think about that, in the case of a place like Puerto Rico, you're dealing with slaves that were bought in the English-speaking Caribbean, ended up in the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, the French-speaking Caribbean ended up there. And we know from some of my research that, that in the 1840s, Spain was going to Madagascar and bringing those slaves to Cuba, which you can assume that if you were a businessman or a slave owner like some of my ancestors, Puerto Rican ancestors who were slave owners, they could have bought Malagasy slaves in Cuba, ended up in Puerto Rico, DR. So we have to look for these. We have to consider that this trade was expansive. Wendy talks about the illegal trade. We know there was an illegal trade after the ending of the African slave trade that ended up in Florida, in Georgia. So we have to keep all of this local history, um, keep the domestic slave trade on our mind in terms of how people got from point A to point B. All of that is relevant. And, you know, so if you're having roots, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, Alabama, you, you, that's one thing to consider is to go back to some of your DNA cousins and if you're on Ancestry and if they have a family tree, hopefully you'll be able to see if potentially you may not have had roots, known roots in Virginia, but maybe some of your DNA cousins point to that, that, that it could be if you, you're in Mississippi that you might have had an ancestor from Virginia. So it's something right. to consider. Well, you have a question coming from the chat room, and you have mentioned M23 haplogroup. And so uh-huh. the question is, is the pervasiveness of the M23 haplogroup due to the higher percentage of Malagasy women brought to New York tri-state area and Virginia by the Dutch? I, I can't answer that because we haven't tested enough people. Um, when you when you talk haplogroups, you're talking location. So we don't have enough information to conclusively say, for example, um, and this is one of the things that I guess Cece would agree with, we need to test more people. We don't know if because the slaves were came early, if they were all taken from a different place than those who came later from Virginia. All I can mm-hmm. tell you at this point that there is more diversity in in the Malagasy folks who ended up in Virginia. So so and oh, it's hard to yeah. say again again the issue of L 
haplogroups come up because we don't know because not enough people have tested or or have shown um, a conclusive link uh, to New York from the L haplogroups. So that's why we need more more testing uh, to pick that up. It's too hard to say. It's too hard to say. Now, you mentioned a new study and new information about the various haplogroups, and I know MT, M23 is definitely one of them. But just give us just an idea okay. of what L haplogroups might people look okay. at to determine okay. if, 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 if that's a Malagasy. Yeah. If people go to my part one, the DNA trail from Madagascar to Manhattan, um, at Radiant Roots Bariqua branches, I have listed all the haplogroups. So, so mtDNA and yDNA. So, in addition to all these variations of L haplogroups, you have the B4A1A1B, E1A1, E1A1A, F3B1, F3B1, um, B, I should say, F4B, M20, M32C. M7, C1, C3, sometimes it's M7, C3. Um, so go to, I refer back to my blog at Radiant Roots Bariqua Branches. You can just Google Part 1, the DNA trail from Madagascar to Manhattan and find it and go to the very end, and you will see all of the updated mitochondrial DNA and Y-DNA haplogroups. Okay, thank you. Now, I want you to also go back to uh, the jet match calculators. You mentioned that earlier, and you, uh-huh. you mentioned one of the calculators. But just I, I, say I, a little bit more about jet match in particular, uh, you know, specific about jet match and why people would want to upload their data to jet match, and then where would they find the calculators? Oh, okay. So jet match is a free site. And what it allows you to do is upload your your raw genome from any of the testing sites to GEDmatch. You have to register first, confirm your email, and then you go in, and on the upper right they provide uh, instructions on how to go about uploading. Once you do that, you're allowed, you're you're basically going to get a one-to-many match list of your DNA cousins who have tested at any of the DNA testing sites. Um, one of the things you can do is on the lower right page, they have an admixture, a bunch of admixture calculators. Um, I prefer some of these calculators than some of the other DNA testing site calculators. Sometimes a calculator is geared towards a specific geographical area. But in my Part 1 blog, the whole second half of my Part 1 blog is talking about the GEDmatch calculators to use. For example, I mentioned MDLP World 22, MDLP K23B, DOCAD V3, DOCAD World 9, DOCAD Africa 9, Eurogenes K13, Eurogenes K36, and Harappa World. And again, most of these calculators are going to detect Southeast Oceanian, Austronesian, South Asian, Melanesian, Polynesian, Papu- Papuan, Malayan, South African, and East African admixture. So if you're, Africa, you're, you're African-American descent, um, you want to consider, you know, you want to see if you have that 
African and Southeast Asian component. And one of the things I want to go back to to my cohort at M23 is um, because these because Wendy mentioned it again that you had uh, uh, Robert King Carter, a majority of the slaves were women and children. The, a lot of those women had children by their slave owner, um, other West Africans, Native Americans. So we actually have people in the project who today you would think uh, are like 99% European, but 1% African, or they could be 100% European, but with a half the group that's Malagasy. So this issue, it, it's not just 100% um, African American folks in the project, it's anybody. And you do the issue of of ancestors passing is is a real one within the um, uh, the the Malagasy descended community. You're going to see that, and we we see that. So, how can someone join the Malagasy project? Um, you have to have an MT DNA test. We're we're insisting because that's the whole point is to look at DNA. Um, so, my advice. Uh, is um, that you, if you've tested anywhere, autosomal test, um, you, and you're showing indicators of Malagasy descent, I, I actually encourage you to take a full sequence mitochondrial DNA test. Because the point and of then the by being a part of this project, what, what happens? Tell us what happens again, when you're again, a part of this project. Again, you take a full sequence test. You are going to get your DNA cousins who are sharing that Malagasy ancestor, a common Malagasy ancestor. So that is your proof. You're also providing a way that anybody testing in the future can connect to you, and you'll find your Malagasy DNA cousins. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to bring Wendy back on and to find out if Wendy has anything to add. And, Teresa, uh, do you have anything else you want to share with everyone? Um, I, I, I'm going to be coming out with a, a part three in the next uh, week or so. Um, I keep adding more and more information, but it, it will be in the vein of my part two, and it will be definitely dropping knowledge of, of, of what happened to these enslaved Malagasy in Virginia. Okay. And okay. it will allow people to explain, and I'll also be discussing DNA again, particular to uh, especially regarding ancestry DNA admixture charts and, and, and um, family trees. Okay, and I just want anybody, if you're interested Wendy. in just talking, Teresa and uh, Wendy, yeah, I'm here. You all are, you both are live, but if anybody wants to call in and ask you all a question, the number is 646-200-0491. Please press 1, and I will see you in the um, on the switchboard. Okay, uh, Wendy, do you have to... any words you want to add? Yeah, I want to uh, underline and agree with uh, Teresa uh, local history is really important, and even though it's kind of repugnant sometimes, it's really worth it to study the movement of the white people that owned your family. Because 
those are the only written records that we have that can help you uh, identify where members of your family in the past might have lived. So um, it's really worth it to look at wills. It's worth it to look at cemeteries, of course, and try to see how those things might fit in. And really, I encourage you, whatever cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents you have, try to talk with them and make them feel comfortable about telling you things that they think you might laugh at. Because once you collect that information, you have it for always. You can use it in many different ways. And when you get, for example, your DNA back, you may find, and I talk with Teresa a lot, uh, all the time about different aspects of the DNA work and the local histories because she's very knowledgeable. She helps me on that side. Knowing your local history may help you match up or come up with better questions for your DNA cousin. So each thing feeds into the other thing. And remember, too, remember too that you have other um, origins in Africa and it helps you to, you should, uh, there's, I don't know how many people know about the slavevoyages.org website. That website will also help you um, think about where your ancestors landed in the United States. A lot of that work has, has been done now. It used to be that nobody knew where anybody went. But actually for the United States now and the Caribbean, as well as South America, historians have been able to uh, note who the majority ethnic groups were for different parts of the country and different parts of the Caribbean. So uh, that's part of the story, too, is how did these people from Madagascar interact with Africans from different parts of the continent, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you can imagine that if it's mostly women, then they had maybe an advantage in teaching those oral histories to their children. But there are many, many stories that can be unearthed. Yes, yes. And do you have anything to, to add, uh, Teresa? Well, I, 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 Wendy said it all, I, 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 but I want to add to what she said. For instance, um, in part three, when I when I discuss Robert King Carter's will, I found out he owned 46 plantations in quote unquote satellite plantations called quarters, all the all over Virginia up until up to Maryland. His descendants in his will, um, he basically tied his slaves to particular plantations and quarters. Those descendants would have inherited those slaves. So when I, I I started off this blog post talking only about my Carter Lee line, and then I find that my cousins on my Thomas Jackson line from Charlottesville, Fredericksburg, Waynesboro, they have Malagasy roots. Um, mm-hmm. They're in, you know, so you 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 have to consider across the board how yeah. progressive, and all these white planter families. Wendy does a good job of describing this in her book. They intermarried, so when you start looking at your DNA cousins, it's like, wow, I've been um, building a list of surnames that are 
quote-unquote Malagasy-descended folk surnames for Virginia. And a lot of those surnames, as you can imagine, come from the white planters. Um, she mm-hmm. mentioned uh, there's there's the Carter, there's the Burrs, there's the Lees, there's the Epps. Um, another one is, is, is Parham, Randolph, Raglan. You know, you see these. So you have to be familiar with a lot of the white planters who had acquired these initial slaves because their descendants, they were probably passed down. Okay. Well, I want to thank both of you for sharing this information with us tonight. And I'm glad that you have a blog, Radiant Roots, so that people could really get into your blog and understand what you're talking about. And also, they should like you on Facebook because you have yeah, so and much and would, information to share with us. Let me add this, too. I, uh, you can go to my blog and subscribe to it so that when I do post Part 3, you'll automatically get it. Great, great. Okay, well, that is wonderful. And Wendy and Teresa, thank you so much. For thank sharing, you so much for this opportunity. Sharing this information with us tonight. Uh, the listeners, this is going to be a podcast, so you can listen as many times as you want. And for the caller that had been waiting, I'm sorry. I want to apologize to you that I didn't get to you tonight. But if you have any questions, please feel free to to ask those questions later. I want everyone to remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, your DNA, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the Afrogenius Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Sewell Smith. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. I want you to also check out my services at BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover Howard. Good night, everyone. Good night, Teresa Vega and Professor Wendy Wilson-Fall. Good night, everybody. Good night, and thank you.